0: Hey, y'all. How was everybody today?
1: Oh, hanging in there. I kicked the semester's whole butt. Oh, I'm jealous. These online classes are kicking mine. My brain just doesn't want to do them. But all my required courses were online this semester.
2: Really? I love the online classes. They make my schedule so much easier. What about you, Akira? How are you?
0: I am so ready to transfer to McDaniel next semester. I love CCBC so much, but I think it's time to spread my wings.
1: Tell me about it, dude. Did you ever just look around and ask yourself, how did we get here? Well, I drove here. Why? Do you need a ride home? No, no, Sam. That's not what I meant, Sam. I mean, how did we get here? Like, CCBC. How does our school exist?
0: Interesting question, Ian. I was just trying to figure that out by researching the GI Bill, which was a major development in the history of higher education.
2: Well, the GI Bill might never have been passed without the land-grant acts that I've been looking into. Ian, haven't you been finding out about the growth of community colleges in the nineteen fifties? Ah, geez. Okay, look,
1: I, I started my research, so it's not quite ready for prime time. Uh, but but I do know it was the sixties, not the fifties.
0: Yeah, that's why you don't know how we got here. But we got you today. We are going to explore how we got here by looking at the history of higher education.
2: My name is Sam. I'm Ian.
0: And I'm Akira.
2: And this is Good School.
3: I consider myself a historian, and I particularly like to study higher education, and also I'd like to connect the history of higher education and American social history to the present.
2: That is Dr. John Thielen. Quick intro. Dr. Thielen is a professor of higher education and public policy at the University of Kentucky. He wrote the history of American higher education. According to Dr. Thielen, the history of higher ed goes back to 1862. While the Civil War tore the country apart, Congress passed the Land Grant Act. The Land Grant Act of 1862 was a way for the government to have some sort of influence in education. The Land Grant Act granted each state 30,000 acres for each of its congressional seats. Funds from the sale of the land were used by some states to establish new institutes of higher education the University of Maryland, in our backyard, was one of the schools that benefited from the Land Grant Act. We spoke with former University of Maryland President Dr. William
4: Brick Kerwin to find out how the Land
2: Grant Act played out in Maryland.
4: Up until the Land Grant Act, which was 1864, colleges and universities were mostly packed into the Northeast, and they were for the wealthy. You know, you had to be a child of a family of significant means to go to a university in those days. And there was a famous senator by the name of Morrill, and he led an effort to democratize higher education and proposed this bill that every state would have a land-grant university. Unfortunately, the women didn't go to college in those days, so this was for young men. And also, unfortunately, the schools in the South were segregated, so they created, about 10 or 20 years later, in the Southern segregated South, a second land-grant college that was available to African-Americans. 28 years after
2: the first Land-Grant Act was passed, the second Land-Grant Act was passed in 1890. Back to Dr. Thielen
3: the second Land-Grant Act of 1890, it was a deal with the devil because the federal government said, if you use federal money for your state colleges, you cannot have racial exclusion. But they put in a weasel clause. They said, but you can do that if you create separate institutions so you would have historically white and historically black state land-grant institutions. And so not surprisingly, the former Confederate states and many other states went for the, what I call separate but unequal uh, arrangement. And so that is why I believe Maryland has historically black state land grant institution. And I think about 16 states do. On the one hand, it promoted access, but it also tended to perpetuate racial separation. It's an example of a mixed legacy from that.
2: The Second Land-Grant Act created the 1890 Historically Black Land-Grant Universities, which were some of the first Historically Black Colleges and Universities, or HBCUs, in the nation. There are 19 Historically Black Land-Grant Institutions. Now back to Dr. Kerwin.
4: In Maryland, we have the University of Maryland College Park, which is the state's land-grant university, And we have the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, which is a historically black college and university, which was the counterpart land-grant university created back in the time of segregation. So the Land-Grant
2: Acts were two congressional actions that established the current system of higher education, but they weren't the only ones.
0: No, they weren't. The GI Bill has a long history, originally named the Servicemen Readjustment Act of 1944, The purpose of this bill was to provide an array of benefits for veterans from World War II.
3: Dr. Thielen explains. The genesis of the GI Bill was that looking at the legacy from World War I, what happened was there was this terrible situation in which large numbers of veterans who had served in World War I were without pensions, without jobs. They were really just kind of forgotten. So...
0: Since the soldiers after World War I were left with nothing, the government decided to do something better for soldiers returning after World War II. The GI Bill became a turning point for higher education.
5: Now he returns with all his experiences in the fight to kill fascism.
3: So what happens as World War II is starting to wind down, one concern was you were gonna have literally hundreds of thousands of veterans entering into the job market and there was a real fear that there would be like civil unrest and the idea of a scholarship or financial aid to go to college was really only one of about 10 programs in washington there were a group of congressmen with long memories who were in the last war they knew that when a man gets out of the army or navy or marines he's worried most about a job an education and a home And that's why Congress, led by the president, passed the law, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, better known as the GI Bill of Rights. What nobody expected was how appealing the idea of financial aid, where the federal government would pay for college tuition and even for living expenses. They thought it was just going to be one of many parts. It just blossomed and it became the most attractive part of all the services for GIs. And so what you would find is that like state universities in the late 1940s and early 1950s, because of their appeal to former veterans, their enrollments would go from like 7,000 to 21,000. The GI Bill greatly increased the seriousness of purpose at many colleges, the returning veterans were very serious students. Many of them came from very non-traditional backgrounds. A lot of them had not graduated from high school. And they they just really changed campus life into being much more diverse. It also changed the whole character of who might be able to go to college.
0: Although the original GI Bill expired in 1956, by the time it did expire, one in three high school grads were going off to college. The term GI Bill is still used today to refer to programs that assist veterans in going to college. Another important congressional act created was the Pell Grant in 1965. The Pell
3: Grants, a lot of it was modeled on the idea of the GI Bill, where the idea that if you meet the conditions of the program, it is an entitlement. You are entitled to this tuition voucher. And above all. It was portable. By that, it meant that if you were a recipient of the federal financial aid, you could carry that. You got to choose the college where you would enroll. So it not only increased access and affordability, it increased choice. That was just, just unprecedented. Hey Ian. Did you
0: know that roughly 1,000 CCBC students are veterans using the current version of the GI Bill?
1: And 30% of CCBC students use the Pell Grant. By making education more accessible for soldiers, education became more accessible for everyone. We can see that happen again with the evolution of online school. According to Dr. Kerwin, the growth of online education is also tied to returning soldiers. This was
4: back uh, right after World War II, and... We had, of course, our military stationed all over the world. The military, in part because of the thinking coming out of the GI Bill, is well, we got all these soldiers overseas. How in the world we need to give them a chance to get a college degree. So the federal government put out what I'll call an RFP and asked universities to bid on winning a contract to take education overseas to the military bases. And so the University of Maryland, of course, being right here in Washington, had, a I think, an inside track anyway, responded to this opportunity and won the contract. It, it, it created this separate institution, which was called University of Maryland University College. As technology began to advance, the idea that maybe we don't have to send faculty to Gaithersburg to give a class. We can maybe start using online education. And so over the years, while we still maintain the overseas campuses, they've shrunk in number, but they they still exist. University College has built up this online capacity with its courses. It is the largest not-for-profit online university in the United States. But University College really grew out of winning this contract to take its courses overseas to the military bases. And now we've gained so much knowledge and in, in capacity and expertise in using technology to deliver instruction. And so there will surely be some hybrid version that will occur as we, you know, move into the post-COVID years. I feel like we're all
1: living proof of that right now. Yes. I mean, I have, like, I'm taking four
4: classes a semester and only one of them are on campus. Right. And and, and you, I'm sure you get value out of that on-campus exp- experience, but there's got to be some convenience or value to your overall life that at least some of the work you do is done online. Am I oh right? yeah. yeah, yeah. How do you? How the rest of you
2: feel? Do you? Do you? Do you the find same. You? I, I. All of my classes at CCBC have been online. Uh huh. So very good example of just how everything's been so convenient.
1: For my, let's call it less than traditional paths to my degree, online classes have been indispensable. For one, it has allowed me to do this podcast completely remote, and for another, it has allowed me to work on my degree while working full time, so I can you know pay rent and live. It has afforded me opportunities I could not have taken without it.
0: Okay, so the Land Grant Act and the GI Bill explain how some were able to go to college. And how college is more accessible to people like us. But how did community college get here?
1: The origins of community college, originally called the Junior College, can be traced back to the University of Chicago. In 1892, the university's then-president, William Rainey Harper, split University of Chicago into two distinct programs. The junior college, which covered the first two years of college, where students underwent traditional instruction, and the senior college, which were the final two years, where students transitioned into performing their own research. Harper's end goal was to keep universities free of anyone not up to their high, prestigious standards.
0: Haha, <laughs> jokes on Harper, because community college students hold some of the most prestigious jobs you could have. According to U.S. News, Eileen Collins, the first woman in NASA history to command a space shuttle, earned her associate's degree from a community college.
3: We have mission and lift off of Columbia.
0: Morgan Freeman studied voice diction at a community college.
3: The lower your voice is, the better you sound.
0: Oscar-winning actor Tom Hanks
3: Wilson!
0: Wilson! says he owes his success to attending a community college. Steve Jobs started at a four-year university and dropped out only to later attend a
3: community college. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything.
1: And American TV host Mike Rowe actually went to Essex Community College. My name's Mike Rowe, and this
2: is my job. We're in good company, so Harper created community colleges back in the 1800s. But when did they start taking off? Well, the majority of this growth
1: occurred in the 1960s and 70s, otherwise known as the boom years. This was also the time when the Pell Grant became popular. One major advocate and catalyst for this growth was Edmund J. Gleiser Jr. Gleiser was the president of the American Association of Junior Colleges from 1956 until 1981, and as a result became the face of the community college movement in the United States. Gleiser appeared on talk shows, delivered speeches, and wrote extensively advocating for community colleges. During his tenure, community college enrollment grew from less than 600,000 to 4.8 million students.
0: And that is how we got here.
2: So without the Land Grant Act, the GI Bill, the rise of community colleges, and online school, we might not be here. You're so right, Sam. With each new development, there are more opportunities for more
1: people to get a college education. And I guess that's a wrap. Sam, could I get that ride home?
5: This episode was produced by Community College of Baltimore County students, Caitlin Drescher, Akira Tisdale, Ian Kafus, and Sam Horn, with help from For Real Media. Hosted by Akira Tisdale, Ian Kafus, and Sam Horn. Writing consultant and editor: Stage Stein edited by E.J. Snyder and Kyle Woodward. Original music and sound design by Kyle Woodward. Audio engineering by Nicholas Carlin. Cover art by Jacob Elliott. Thank you to the American Council of Learned Societies and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation's Humanities for All program for funding this episode. Thank you to CCBC librarians Jean Box, Jamie Whitman and Elizabeth Godwin for research support. Professor Jeremy Kaplan, for his support and guidance. Journalists Sarah Hable and Scott Smallwood for consulting on this episode. Kelly Hurd and Ariel Nissenbland for marketing consultation. Angel Lewis, Kaylee McIntyre, and Andrea Alvarado Avila, that's me, for managing our social media. Dr. John Thielen and Dr. William Breed here, Win, for participating in this episode. And to the whole Good School crew for hanging in there and working hard over the past two years to produce this podcast series. Good School is a production of For Real Media, a Baltimore podcast production house, removing perceived barriers to media production and bringing more inclusivity to storytelling. Find Good School on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Good School Pod. Tell your friends, your family, your students, your colleagues, and anyone you think will be interested about our podcast. Leave a five-star review to help others find us. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you will always know when new episodes drop. Go to forrealmediacd forward slash good dash school for more information about this episode. You'll find a transcript of the episode and more good stuff in our show notes. Bye for now!